Well, it's been happening way too often lately, and it's happening again this morning, that we are saying goodbye to another really good friend and a precious member of the body of Christ. This morning is Erin Naylor's last Sunday with us before she sets out for Greenville, South Carolina, where she will be teaching as a professor of aesthetics at Bob Jones University. Um, so those, those singles and couples that are part of our postgrads ministry here at New St. Peter's, we have long been dreading saying goodbye to Aaron because we've known that it's been coming now for a couple years. And we are going to so miss her wisdom and her insight, her friendship, her humor, her compassionate heart, her listening heart. So if you have a chance, Aaron's right back here. Aaron, you put your hand up. If you have a chance... Give her a hug and wish the Lord's blessings on her as she heads out for her future ministry. Well, we're going to return again this morning to the letter, the epistle written to the Hebrew Christians. We've taken a short break from it in the last couple weeks, giving us the opportunity to hear from Matt Odom and from Sean Newsom last week. But this morning we're going to once again pick up the theme of God's new revelation of himself given to us in Christ. And I'll remind us for just a second, as as Colin helped us to see a few weeks ago as he preached chapter 8, God has made his new covenant with his people, a new covenant that has replaced the old covenant made with Moses and the Israelites, because this new covenant contains better promises a better high priest, and as we'll see this morning, a better answer to our guilt. Young Christians, young theologians, as you listen this morning, I just have two things for you. The first one is an activity. See if you can draw a picture or draw a diagram of the Old Testament tabernacle, the tent that the Old Testament people, the Israelites, would use for their worship as Hebrews chapter 9 describes it. Listen carefully as we talk about it, how it was laid out and the different objects that were in it. And the second piece that I have for you is a question. What has God done to heal us from our guilt? What has God done with our guilt? How has he responded to our problem of guilt? This is the good news of Jesus as it has come to us through his priestly ministry and through his sacrificial ministry. And it is a good news that wipes away our guilt and we find it in Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things... We cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, 
and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, justify, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning once again needing the comfort of your gospel, the comfort of your word. Many of us come this morning wearing stains of guilt on us, like black clothes that never seem to fall off. And we need your assurance, and we need your grace, and we need to hear about what you have done to reach us where we are, what you've done with our guilt, what you've done with our imperfections and all of our shortcomings, so that we can know that you as our Father welcome us readily with arms, ready to catch us up with your divine hug. Father, this morning, would you remind us of these things through your word? And would you do it through the Son and by the Spirit? Amen. You can be seated. Well, it was a cold and an icy morning, and this last winter, as a lot of us will remember, we had quite a few of those. But it was a fun morning. Our Christmas tree was up along with the lights, and we had nativity scenes up all over the place and other decorations throughout the house. We had a nice warm breakfast, and we were ready for just kind of a lazy Saturday spent inside with games and movies and books. And then we got the call, and it was from a good friend. And he was calling to tell us that he had three tickets for our family to come and watch a performance of the famous Christmas time ballet, The Nutcracker, in Garland later that day. We didn't even have to think about it. We excitedly got ready, and we drove with extra care over icy roads that were not going to see the attention of Texas's only snowplow for a few more days. But we got there on time and sat down next to Brian and Ashlyn Welch's family who had two daughters who danced so well in the performance. And I listened to their precious five-year-old youngest daughter who sat next to me whispering in my ear, helping me understand what was going on in each scene. But as I watched the incredible athleticism and the power and the grace and the beauty exhibited on the stage for hours, telling a magical story, 
I came to a realization that I was not going to be very quick to share with many people at the time. Living in a culture that we live in, which so often defines masculinity in the absurd ways that it does, shouting from the housetops that, as a 35-year-old man, you are enjoying a ballet isn't always received well. But as I thought about it longer, I decided that it was good for others to know that I really, really enjoyed it and to know why. Ballet is a fantastic medium for communicating power and grace and finesse and beauty in sequence. Each ballet has a certain fixed sequence made up of very ordered movements set often to ordered classical music performed by well-drilled and practiced professionals. But this sequence and order and preparation doesn't take away from its ability to communicate or its beauty or its power to capture its audience, but in fact it actually aids in it. The audience is drawn in through the various movements, the leaping and the turning and the twisting of bodies and performers, which carry so much symbolism in what they're doing. And the music comes alongside the dance and adds even more symbolism while helping the audience to rightly interpret the symbolism of all the movements taking place. And of course, what binds all of these activities of ballet together is the story, the narrative that's being portrayed through all of these elements. And when I thought about this, I realized that the same reasons I have for enjoying a ballet like the Nutcracker are the same reasons that I love and appreciate liturgy. Liturgy comes from the Greek word liturgia in Scripture, and it could refer to any kind of public service, but usually religious public service. But as the word continued to be used down through the centuries in the church, it came to refer to the order of public worship involving the words written for prayers scriptural readings, the order of events for the Eucharist, or what we would call the Lord's Supper, and all the events and movements and words set in a particular order for a Christian worship service. As many of us know, what we hold in our hands every Sunday morning in our bulletins is the liturgy, the order of worship for New St. Peter's Presbyterian Church. Like ballet, the liturgy of God's people has always used physical movements and objects and music and drama and symbolism to portray God's very beautiful and very true story of how he, the hero, has come to save his lost people and to cleanse them from their sin and give them a new home and a new way to approach him in fellowship. And this liturgy didn't start with Jesus It began again in Jesus. Instead, as our passage tells us, the old liturgy began in a tent called a tabernacle in the Old Testament. In verse 1, the author begins by telling us that the old covenant, the system of promises and worship and way of approaching God, was governed by regulations and a fixed order of doing things. In other words, it was governed by a liturgy. It was itself a liturgical format. The tabernacle was made out of two compartments, two sections, 
And then the place outside the tabernacle was called the courtyard. And in the courtyard was the bronze altar upon which the animal sacrifices for all the sins of the nation were made for the people. And the priests alone could enter the actual tabernacle tent. The first section, as verse 2 tells us, was called the holy place. And inside this section was the lampstand with seven lamps that were to always be lit, picturing the eternal light of God's truth and guidance, the eternal light of his presence, as Colin reminded us in his introduction to worship earlier. And across from it was the bread of his, again, presence, the bread of his presence, with the bread that was to be replaced every Sabbath, a symbolic reminder of God's presence to always provide for all the needs of his people, physical and spiritual. And in verses 3 through 5, the author tells us of objects which were in the second section, the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place, as it's sometimes called. The largest and the most important object was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the two stone tablets upon which were written the Ten Commandments, the law of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Ark is said to have contained the golden altar for burning incense, the golden urn containing manna, and Aaron's staff that miraculously budded with blossoms and ripe almonds. The shining presence of God's glory would sit over the two carved cherubs on top of the ark, which was called the mercy seat. Although the writer of the Hebrews clearly states that the most holy place contained all of these objects, just go ahead and deal with this right now here, the Old Testament seems to indicate that at least at the beginning, only the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. And so scholars speculate and debate how and why why these extra objects, how they ended up in the Holy of Holies. But the reality is it's probably best just to assume that the author to the writer of the Hebrew, the, the writer of the Hebrews rather, has a source of information that's probably been lost to us at some point in the last 2,000 years. And he had clearly much in his mind that he could have told us either about their history or about their symbolism or their use in the liturgy of God's old old covenant people. But he says in verse 5 that these things don't serve his greater point. And so he's not going to share much more about them. He's too eager to get to his next point. And he begins to make his point by reminding us not just what was in the tabernacle, but by briefly mentioning in broad categories the types of liturgical service the priests would offer. Ritual duties, he calls them in verse 6. The presentation of gifts and sacrifices and washings in verses 9 and 10. And the author's point throughout this whole context is to remind us that the very nature of the old liturgy instituted in the law and the tabernacle was meant to communicate its temporary usefulness. It's temporary usefulness. The priests had to daily minister as mediators, those who would represent the people of God. And these daily repetitive acts of worship pointed to the fact that their ministry was never going to be enough. Apart from Christ's coming, there would have never been a light at the end of that bloody tunnel. 
It, it would have just been an ongoing, everyday, forever affair because the one that we sinned against as the human race is so high and so lifted up and so holy and so set apart and unlike his fallen creation that no amount of daily sacrifices in the court and no amount of incense burnt and no amount of oil for the burning lamps was ever going to be enough to wipe human sin away for good. But just as the constant daily activity in the tabernacle court and the holy place cried out for the need of a Savior and cried out that it was only a temporary setup, so also the great inactivity of the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, cried out for a Savior. After so much work, after so much blood and so many washings and so much death for sin, guess how often this gained access for God's people to come into God's throne room in the Holy of Holies? Verse 7 has the answer. Just once. Just one time a year. And for only one person, the high priest who would come to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, who would come to sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement, only one time, and only he could go in to the Most Holy of Holies one time a year. And so, as the writer of the Hebrews explains in verse 8, through the very nature of this old liturgy, this tabernacle system of worship, the Holy Spirit was proclaiming that the ultimate answer, God's final solution for dealing with the problem of human sin, had not yet come. The blood of animals and the sacrifices of the old liturgy was effective, but it was only effective to a point. They were effective to make one ceremonially clean, which means that that by undergoing these rituals, a worshiper could be readmitted to tabernacle worship, whereas maybe they had been defiled by sin or touching a dead body or by becoming unclean in any manner of ways described in Exodus and Leviticus. The animal sacrifices were also effective of signs and symbols pointing to a greater sacrifice that would have to cleanse from the guilt of sin, but they did not have the power to bring that true inner cleansing of guilt from our conscience by themselves. And it is our inner condition that truly defiles us, as Jesus said to his disciples in Mark chapter 7. Jesus tells his disciples, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within From the heart of man come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness, deceit and sensuality and envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And it's they that defile a person, Jesus says. And it was these things that the sacrifices of the old covenant had no power to cleanse in themselves. This is why the author says in verse 13 that they were effective to sanctify or purify the flesh, the external outward person for readmission to ceremonial worship. But that's where their effectiveness ended. 
And as the writer to the Hebrews presents the old liturgy, he's, he's not demonizing it. He doesn't condemn it or portray it as being inaccurate or having come down from some sort of a flawed mind, a flawed system. But he presents it as incomplete, as inadequate, insufficient. It's a a picture without color and without a frame. It's a story without a climactic ending, just dropping off in mid-sentence. It's like watching the Nutcracker with dancers, but without any of Tchaikovsky's beautiful music behind it. And it cries out for completion, for fulfillment. And in verse 11, our writer tells us of the one who brought us the new beginning. The one who would be the mediator of a new liturgy for God's people. It is God's Son become a human being that brought the time of reformation mentioned in verse 10. In his death on the cross, Jesus performed the usual two-part ritual of the high priest on the day of atonement which was slaying the sacrifice and then presenting its blood upon the Holy of Holies. Jesus played the twofold role of the high priest and the victim. Because Jesus is the new high priest, as the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 7, because he was the sacrifice, as the writer says here, Christ performs both actions through his suffering on the cross. He's both high priest and he's both the bloody sacrifice. All in one. And he is far superior to the old liturgy in both roles, both ways. As the new and better high priest, Christ, he didn't enter a a man-made tent once a year, every year. He entered the, the true holy of holies before his Father's presence in heaven where no other man could go. And he only had to do it once. As the new and better sacrifice, Christ didn't just make us ceremonially clean for a year until the next day of atonement came around. Verse 12 declares that he secured for you and for me an ongoing, a never-ending redemption. In verse 14, the writer says that this blood of unending worth was offered through the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit. And this is a reference to the section in Isaiah's prophecy where the prophet talks about the coming of God's great servant, the future Messiah. And God says in Isaiah 42 verse 1, I have put my spirit upon him. Every part of Messiah's ministry was to be accomplished by the power of the spirit, including the climax of his whole ministry, his priestly death and resurrection. And so the writer of the Hebrews alludes to Isaiah telling us that it was through the Spirit that Christ offered himself. Isaiah also says that the coming Messiah would be offered as a sacrifice without blemish. One who had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. What the animals were as a picture, perfect specimens, physically. Jesus was morally, internally, spiritually. 
innocent and without sin and without blemish. And so Christ was able to give his life as a sacrifice that could make good on all the symbols and tokens and promises contained in the animal sacrifices of the past. He alone could purify what truly defiles you and me. The defilement that's carried inside the heart of the cleanest of priests and the most knowledgeable of theologians and the most sought-after persons, the most sought-after counselors and pastors, the most noteworthy Bible readers and prayer warriors and service projectors. His blood alone could accomplish the greatest of miracles, which is to take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. To take hearts steeped in the attentions of self and turn them into hearts of self-giving love. To take hearts that are self-righteous and arrogant and defensive of every motive and action and then break them and humble them and bring us to confess with willing and joyful spirits that though we are unclean, we have a Savior a Savior who washes us from the inside out to be whiter than snow. I don't know about you, but I do too many things, way too many things, out of guilt. I have a short fuse for people who I can tell are trying to motivate me to do things out of guilt. Because my thought is, hey, buddy, I don't need your help. I run on the engine of guilt fairly well without your involvement. Thank you very much. And I can spend way too much time and energy second-guessing my actions as a husband and a father and a pastor out of a sense of guilt and perfectionism at not being who I'm supposed to be or not being who I'm afraid someone else expects me to be. And one of the problems with guilt motivation is not just that no one has a bigger finger in your face than you do, but that you can begin to think that others are treating you with bad motives or are trying to manipulate you when they're not at all. It can often just be a case of guilt transfer believing that others view you in a certain way because of your own guilt and your own paranoia and your own view of yourself. Guilt is powerful. It kills a lot of relationships and it always kills a lot of joy. In this passage, this passage confronts our guilt with the strongest message possible. The new liturgy that we find in Jesus' fulfillment of everything that was in the old liturgy is always going to be the remedy for our guilt. Because of Him, there's one sacrifice. Not once a year, but, but just one. For all time. That's it. And the access to the throne, it, it's, it's no longer... Once a year for one man, but it is any time, and it is every day, and it is many times a day, and it's open to all who come through the new liturgy of Jesus' identity and Jesus' body and his blood. 
And this means that we are to see ourselves no longer as bearing the guilt of our failures and our sins and our shortcomings and our imperfections. This means that because of Jesus as high priest and Jesus as sacrifice, he's, he's reaching into the heart of those who have trusted his work before God as their own. And he is daily in the process of ripping out the old engines of guilt that animate and motivate our lives. And he's replacing it with the motivations of his spirit. Desires to walk in his law out of a love for righteousness, not out of a fear of condemnation or the condemnation of others. And so for all of you who are like me, leave your guilt outside the tent. Leave your guilt outside the tent and walk with your high priest to the Father's mercy seat. And do it regularly. Do it daily. Do it as often as necessary. Because the way to his throne it will never be shut for you. Your high priest and your sacrifice, the Lord Jesus has opened it. No man can shut it. In 1709, the great British churchman and hymnist Isaac Watts, he wrote a hymn entitled, Not All the Blood of Beasts. And he writes the first two verses, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And so come to the Father and worship Him through Jesus, your new liturgy and mine. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And Father, we ask this morning, collectively as your people, that you be working in us by your Spirit to free us from our guilt. We are all people that suffer under the weight of guilt. It may come to us all in different directions, in different ways, in different means, in different people. But the guilt is the same. And so, Father, we need this same remedy, the remedy of your Son, the remedy of his sacrifice, the remedy of his priesthood. And so I pray this morning, Father, that through the word that we just heard and also through this sacrament, the Lord's Supper that we prepare to take, that you would assuage our guilt, that you would wash our guilt, that you would cleanse us from our guilt that you would take off the black robes we've been wearing this week and you would put on new robes, the robes of your Son, for us to wear in joy, joy with you and joy with others. Free us to walk in your ways and in your law, not out of fear, but out of love, out of hearts made new. We ask these things because of what the Son has done and by the Spirit. Amen.